Hi there, Andrew Dunkley here, the host of Space Nuts. Glad you could join us again for a brand new episode. And coming up on this particular episode, 369, we'll be looking at solar winds. Uh, we've known about them for a long time, but we haven't really been sure about what creates them. Well, now they think they know. And spots on Neptune. Yes, it's got acne. Uh, we'll also be answering audience questions about photons, gas clouds, and living on Mars versus living on Venus. That's all to come on this episode of Space Nuts. 15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 10, 9, ignition sequence start. Space Nuts. 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. And joining me as always is Professor Fred. What's an astronomer at large? Hello, Fred. Hello, Andrew. How are you doing this morning? I am quite well, considering that I played a very horrible game of golf last weekend. And just to finish me off, I walked out into the car park and I had a flat tyre. Doesn't get much worse than that. <laughs> well... You could have had argy-bargy along the way. Who no, actually, it can get worse because I changed the tyre and found that there was a different wheel. wasn't the same matching wheel as the one that came off and different set of nuts, and one of them was the wrong size. So, you know. Yeah, that's a little bit more that, salt into the wound there. It's a new car as well, isn't it? It oh, is, new, yeah. New, yeah, yeah. But, they, but they don't give you spare tyres anymore in, in oh, no. um, certain models. And so I had to request a spare because where I live, I, I, you can get stranded a long way from anywhere and you don't want one of those limited distance sort of spares. And so I got a full spare, but they couldn't get a matching one. As it turned out, apparently uh, not. Not only that, different nuts, so different sized nuts, different, uh, yeah, yeah. different problems. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, I'll, I'm, I'm going to go out today and get that sorted. It's... I think, you, yes, you probably should make that a priority. Yeah. Um, for the same reason as you, I also, when I got my car, it's now five years ago, uh, got a full size spare, which wasn't standard with it. And mm -hmm. um, not only did you have to buy the full size spare, you had to buy a new floor for the for the uh, luggage area at the back. <laughs> well, funny you should say that because my luggage cover doesn't quite close. No, that'll be right because you've got a different... Which I find time. quite annoying because every time you hit a bump, it goes... Yeah. <laughs> as it bounces up and down. It just sounds just like that. Mm. Yes. Uh, uh, first world, first oh. world problems. Yes, indeed. That's right. Mm. Indeed they are. Yes. Okay. Right. Uh, Fred... <laughs> Let's uh, get down to business, and uh, this first story is very exciting, and that is uh, a NISA-NASA collaboration, the Solar Orbiter, which is uh, focused on the sun, which we don't normally recommend, but these are specialised <laughs> objects that uh, look at the sun all the time, and um, they, they may have solved one of the great mysteries of the sun, uh, and, and uh, this, this has probably got a lot of people talking. Uh, I think so, yeah. Uh, so... You know, considering it's our nearest star, there's a huge amount that we still don't know about the sun. Yeah. Uh, really quite extraordinary. Um, we we now know, and this is something we didn't used to know, that uh, the sun is highly magnetic, that it's uh, it's sort of a tumultuous magnetic environment. That's what gives rise to, to sunspots, of course, and uh, which is which are usually on the sun and not usually on the moon. Uh, the, um, the the so that the, the the 
that the, the, the um, understanding of how this all works has been evolving, I guess, um, over the last 20 years, and in particular since spacecraft like the Solar Orbiter uh, has uh, have been in, in action. Uh, mm. Solar Orbiter is a, really a, a, an interesting uh, spacecraft because it, it sort of sits in the plane of the planets, as you might expect. It orbits uh, the sun, so it's always looking at the sun's equator, um, and doesn't normally look at the polar regions of the sun because because you're looking at a very shallow angle if you do that. Yes. Uh, however, um, that is what these observations are uh, are, are reporting, uh, made by principally European scientists because it's a an ESA NASA project. Um, and what's happened is that when uh, they look in real detail and not just in visible light, but uh, in extreme ultraviolet light. So this is uh, it's almost X-rays. It's so short wavelength. Um, bearing in mind that sort of normal green daylight has a wavelength of 500 nanometers, these uh, observations are made at a wavelength of uh, 17.3, I think, nanometers, uh, way, way down in the high-energy region of the of the spectrum, sorry, seventeen point four nanometers, really high energy, uh, tiny wavelength uh, radiation. So this is what we call extreme ultraviolet, uh, and there is a device on board Solar Orbiter called the Extreme Ultraviolet Imager, or EUI, and that takes uh, takes pictures uh, with a, an extreme ultraviolet filter. So um, the, uh, the 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 work that was done. Uh, that's being reported uh, dates from actually March uh, last year, uh, and, and it's an analysis, a detailed analysis of images of what's called a coronal hole uh, in the sun's uh, s- near the sun's south pole, um, and a coronal hole is a hole in the corona. Uh, <laughs> what, what's the corona? The corona is the sun's uh, it, so the sun's. Um, Inner atmosphere, if I can put it that way. Uh, mm. the, the, the three main parts of the sun's disk, as observed by uh, you know by normal astronomers for a long, long time, um, are the photosphere, which is the bit that we can see. That's the bright bit. The corona, sorry, the chromosphere, which is the uh, sort of middle part of the atmosphere, uh, and is actually, if I remember rightly, it's cooler than the um, than the photosphere it's all a bit wonky in terms of temperatures and then the corona itself which is the outer atmosphere of the sun so um these coronal holes are uh, sort of gaps in the inner part of the uh, of the corona where you can see a little bit further down into the chromosphere and that's what these observations are about what the scientists have done have detected tiny uh, and by tiny i mean on the scale of the sun tiny jets of uh, of material um, sort of squirting out from uh, the sun's, effectively the sun's surface, the photosphere, um, lasting of order a minute uh, between 20 and 100 seconds and uh, spurting out at 100 kilometers per second. So that's pretty high energy stuff. They're very yeah. fast. And the thinking is that what we're seeing here is our first real hint as to how the solar wind is sort of ejected uh, from the sun's surface, because this uh, this is the first time that something like this has been seen. Uh, I think these jets appear and disappear, uh, sort of all over the 
you know, all over the place and um, uh, with this very high speed. So uh, this could be the holy grail, the missing link, if I can put it that way, in our understanding of how the sun's work, sun works, courtesy of a spacecraft that's got an, uh, incredible sensitivity mm. um, in, in the extreme ultraviolet. The details that are being revealed here are quite extraordinary. And now, you said the observations were taken in March 2022. Why has it taken 18 months for them to... Well, it's, uh, that's pretty typical of uh, research. Yeah, if you've got something um, that uh, it is a, a, an observation that needs a lot of what we call data reduction, where you're actually, uh, you know, t- turning turning the the raw numbers that come from the spacecraft into things like images and, in particular, velocities, because uh, y- you have to calibrate the images to work out what sort of velocities these things are, are, are squirting. Uh, squirting out at um, so I think uh, I, I think the um, you know the the, the uh, detail that we've seen here takes a long time to tease out and hence the length of time that uh, you've you've you, you've got to wait for the results um, I think um, just one other thing uh, that I mentioned I said that the uh, that the uh, the spacecraft is indeed looking at the sun's equator but that's not permanent because the uh, the spacecraft is in an orbit that will actually tilt eventually. Um, and so I think in a few years, we'll be seeing directly down onto the polar regions of the sun. Uh, and that probably means that we'll get a much better view of of the bit of the solar disk that uh, are being observed uh, to, to find these, these jets. So mm. I think this is a story that will uh, evolve a little bit as time goes on. So we still don't know a lot, like uh, whether or not uh, this is happening all over the disk of the sun yeah. or only in parts of it. Um, yeah. And and I suppose the other thing is, is this happening all the time? Yes, that's right. So all of those um, all of those questions are ones that we hope will be answered. Uh, I guess um, you know a, a, an indication of the importance of this work comes from the journal in which it's published, which is Science and Science is the leading American journal for really high-impact scientific discoveries. So Mm. I think the fact that it's in science tells us that there's a lot of excitement about this, uh, and this is something that that maybe is, you know, maybe as we're saying, it is the answer to uh, the good old solar wind. That's where it comes from. So will this work have to be peer-reviewed, or is that already past Uh, master? That's a that's a good question. Um, I, it is on. I think it's peer reviewed already. Um, okay. But looking at the reference that we've got there, so yes. Mm. Now, um, like black, uh, like dark matter and dark energy, are solar winds incorrectly named, or is it actually wind? <laughs> <laughs> I. It, it's yeah. They could have probably had a better name. Um, but you know, it, it, the, I think the the reason why it's called a wind is because it's like wind on Earth, which is uh, particles of air blowing around <laughs> molecules of air. Uh, the solar wind is is particles. Uh, it's subatomic particles, which are highly magnetized, highly electrically excited. It's a plasma that's blowing out. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, it is a, a wind. You could call it a breeze, but that's a bit, you know, doesn't. Something moving at a million kilometres an hour, you wouldn't normally call a breeze, I don't think. Maybe no, I said solar gale might be better. Yeah, yeah, that seems more appropriate. And these these are the part of the reason we see uh, aurorae, correct? Yes, that's right. Yeah, the yeah. solar wind interacting with the 
with the Earth's uh, um, magnetic, well, being spiraled into the Earth's magnetic field near the poles and interacting with the Earth's atmosphere. Ah, it, it is a really exciting discovery, and uh, I hope they do learn more about it and we're able to, um, you know, finally crack one of the great secrets of the sun because um, it's the only opportunity we've got is to learn what our star is doing because the other ones are all too far away to study at this level. Uh, it, exactly. <laughs> uh, this this level of detail, uh, really, you've got to be right next door to it as the solar orbiter is. Uh, and, yeah, so we, we indeed uh, are fortunate in having a view of a star that is it's a pretty normal star as well. It's not eccentric in you know in in many ways it it has gone through periods of eccentricity uh, as all stars do when they're evolving but it's um it's normal it is very stable and uh, just as well it is or else we'd be in big trouble yes indeed yeah it's it, it didn't someone classify it as a fairly boring star at some stage well that's you know, what you'd no, need nothing nothing you <laughs> yeah. know amazing or extraordinary or weird about it it's just yeah yeah, yeah it's just you know run-of-the-mill star yeah. typical might be better typical that's yeah that typical sounds nice yeah, i don't want to make it angry <laughs> no, don't do that okay uh so all right so the story in a nutshell is that they think they've observed um the these these fishes or holes in the in the um out in the inner outer area that's spitting out plasma at high speed that uh is, possibly the cause, probably the cause of solar winds. Perfect summary, Andrew. Uh, I thought it was brilliantly worded too, yes, (laughs) indeed. Okay, uh, and if you do want to look into that story, uh, go to phys.org. They have a really good uh, explanation of the whole thing, but uh, it does appear that one of the great mysteries of our uh, sun has finally been cracked. This is Space Nuts with Andrew Dunkley and Professor Fred Watson. Let's take a break from the show right now to talk about our brand new sponsor, Incogni. It's a new data protection service. And let's face it, data is being peddled by brokers all around the world. And chances are your personal information is in there somewhere. Uh, Well, as a Space Nuts listener, I've got something uh, special for you, uh, important, in fact, uh, to share with you today. How often do you think about the personal data of yours that's out there on the internet? It's a rather startling fact that our data is being sold or even published without our knowledge. But there is a silver lining to all of this. You have every right to protect your privacy and ask these data brokers to erase your information. Now, if you're thinking about doing it yourself, um, you might want to think twice. It could take years to do this just once and... To be realistic about it, you need to repeat this process, which is rather tedious, every few months so that they are continually erasing your data because it's persistently collected and they create new records of your data and you'd probably be surprised just where they get the data from and just how much they have on you. Uh, But here's the game changer, Incogni. They're the experts that will handle all of this for you, ensuring your data is removed from all of those databases, which in turn reduces spam and uh, those scam attacks that people complain about so often. And the best part, uh, while their subscriptions are already incredibly affordable, as a special treat for our Space Nuts audience, you get up to 60% off if you join Incogni today. 
To find out more, check out their website and take advantage of our special 60% off offer. Head over to www.incogni.com slash space nuts. And incogni is spelt I-N-C-O-G-N-I. The URL again, incogni.com slash space nuts, or simply apply the discount code space nuts at the checkout. So don't let your data be someone else's uh, profit-making tool. Take control and let Incogni do the hard work for you. You'll find URL details in the show notes and on our website. Zero G and I feel fine. Space nuts. Yes, indeed, and good to have your company. Fred, let's move on to our next topic, um, and it's all about spots. And spots seem to be a fairly common thing in our solar system, we have spots on uh, Jupiter. We have spots on the Sun. Boom, boom, and uh, we've and we've spots now on teenagers as well. Sorry, spots on teenagers too. So yes, <laughs> yes, they're all over the place. They are everywhere, and this is about spots on Neptune. Yeah, that's right. So um, you're absolutely right. Uh, I mean, the the particular kinds of spots that we're talking about are the ones uh, in the atmospheres of gas giant planets, and all of the gas giants have spots from time to time. Uh, I guess the best known one, uh, and certainly the most aptly named one, is the Great Red Spot on Jupiter, which is big and red, and it's a mm. spot. Um, and that's uh, just to the south of the planet's equator. It's in one of the uh, cloud belts, I think the, uh, one of the equatorial region cloud belts, but south of the equator. Uh, we think that spot has been observed since uh, Giovanni Cassini spotted it <laughs> in uh, six- <laughs> sorry, dad jokes. Yeah, 1665. So um, it's been around for a long time. Mm. Uh, a very long-lived feature, feature. It comes and goes a little bit. It, it, it never disappears because you can always see its outline, even though the colouring sometimes changes. Sometimes it gets very pale. I think I think we did a story some time back about the fashion. It was starting to shrink here diminish it's right yeah mm. uh, but it's still there um you know after well not far off 400 years so yeah getting on for that so yes a long a long established uh a long established storm uh and and um because yeah, well, that's what it is it's actually a cyclonic storm um a big pun an anti-cyclonic storm it's uh it's it's a high pressure region but it's mm. still causing stormy weather in the region around it. Um, if you can find it, and it's pretty easy to, to, to find, there's, uh, there's footage which I think actually goes back to the old Voyager or maybe even Pioneer days. Yeah, I remember uh, that. Movie footage that shows the way um, the atmospheric uh, turbulence, the atmospheric eddies uh, move around the Great Red Spot. You can see circulation around it, that it is, uh, you know, the, the air in it or the gas in it is circulating. Uh, so it's, it's always worth uh, following up on the Great Red Spots. Such a interesting place. Uh, mm. Saturn too has spots, uh, more temporary. Uh, we uh, I think we've talked about uh, Trevor Barry before, one of the great observers of Saturn spots, uh, an Australian former miner in Broken Hill. Uh, That's right. Just recently won, t- uh, well, last year and this year has won two very prestigious awards for his work on the spots on Saturn, uh, which uh, took him into the bosom of, uh, of NASA planetary scientists because he collaborated with them uh, for the Cassini spacecraft mission between 2004 and 2017. So uh, a, a very uh, a, a very worthwhile spot, sp- 
Spotter of Scots. Sorry, I can't get away from this. Can I? <laughs> you can't. Uh, but the two, there are, just moving on, cutting to the chase here, the two ice giants, uh, uh, Uranus and Neptune, uh, called ice giants because of the presence of ices in their atmosphere, mostly water, ammonia, and uh, methane ices. Um, they are spotty as well, but mm. Uranus is less spotty than Neptune. Uh, and I'm not sure if we know why that is, um, but Neptune is definitely spottier. Um, it, it was visited, uh, I think we've talked about this before, only once by a spacecraft, and that was Voyager 2 back in 1989. Uh, at the end of its grand tour of the giant planets, it uh, flew by by Neptune and showed uh, a big spot on the planets in the planet's southern hemisphere. Yeah. Um, unlike the red spot, it was a dark one. Uh, so it was called the Great Dark Spot. Uh, and it, it actually, but the, the interesting thing is that when that was followed up by the Hubble Space Telescope, it was found to have disappeared. It, um, so uh, and other dark spots have come and gone. So mm. they're much more temporary in the atmosphere of Neptune uh, than they are in the atmosphere of Jupiter. So we now have new observations, uh, which are of Neptune's uh, spotty face. Um, and, and again, it's a dark spot. Now, this is a, a bit of history making because uh, it's the first time spots on Neptune have been observed from a ground-based telescope. Yeah. And uh, they were made by uh, the European Southern Observatory's very large telescope, the VLT uh, on Cerro Paranal in northern Chile. Um, the telescopes which Australian astronomers have access to now, courtesy of a, a strategic partnership broken by the Australian government uh, back in 2017. So uh, these are telescopes that are used by Australian astronomers. Uh, but this work actually uh, doesn't come from Australian astro uh, astronomers. This, I think it's UK and UK and USA, if I remember rightly. Mm. Um, what they've done, and, and this is why it's interesting to use a ground-based telescope, because you can use very sophisticated instrumentation. Uh, with the Hubble, you kind of stuck with what was put on it when it was launched. And there's, there are some very specific, uh, sophisticated instruments on board the Hubble, but you can do much better with a ground-based telescope. And in particular, there's an instrument called MUSE, um, can't remember what MUSE is an acronym for. Oh, Spectroscopic Explorer, probably at the end. Multi-unit, I think that's what it is. Multi-unit Spectroscopic Explorer, which is a device that lets you look at the spectrum, not just of a single object, but of an area of, of an image. Uh, so you get what's called a data cube. You get a picture, but you get that same picture at every different wavelength. Um, oh. So it's sort of three-dimensional. And... Um, the work that's been done with Muse on Neptune has revealed this a dark spot, uh, which is um, giving up its secrets because of the sophistication of the uh, of the instrument that's being used. Because you can actually uh, deduce how deep it is in the atmosphere. Um, it is quite deep, uh, but it's it's not just uh, a hole in Neptune's outer cloud layer, which I think for a while people have thought that's what these dark spots were, holes in the outer cloud layer that's letting you see darker layers below. Uh, but actually, it seems to be more to do with uh, a natural darkness of that area of, of the 
cloud sublayer. So the the, the, the outer layer of uh, that you see of Neptune, the, the the top of the cloud deck, what you're seeing is is particles of haze. These are probably ice particles and other particles. Um, uh, but the thinking as to what causes this darkness is a mixture of of some of the ices with different hazes that has has turned it darker, if I can put it that way. Okay. Um, so it's it's all about planetary chemistry uh, rather than holes in atmosphere in clouds. It's about chemistry. That's the, right. the bottom line. Um, but there is a, 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 another discovery that's associated with this that's got uh, the scientists very excited. And I'm not a spot specialist on Neptune by any means, but they're very excited to find a bright spot nearby, um, which is which has also been identified as being quite deep in the atmosphere and not a sort of phenomenon of, of the outer cloud layer of Neptune. Mm. Uh, so that's been given a name. It's been called a deep, bright cloud. Uh, but I, I don't think they've yet worked out what's causing it. I think it's uh, a bit of a mystery, that. Uh, so there is uh, much still to be discovered. But I, I think, you know, and certainly the Isopress release that, that I read, um, what is being really touted here is the fact that it's uh, it's a new way of observing Neptune by using ground-based equipment of extreme sensitivity, uh, the resolution of the very large telescope in terms of the amount of detail that it can see is quite extraordinary, and this is just an, a really nice example of that. Uh, do we think these are storms? Um, yes. Uh, I, I guess they're caused, you know, the thinking probably is that they are uh, caused by some sort of storm-type disturbance in the atmosphere. Even though, you know, the, the evidence is that this dark spot is actually, it's chemical, it's a chemical colouring of the lower atmosphere. Um, that probably originates because of turbulence or disturbances in the atmosphere. Maybe another, you know, maybe another um, of these cyclones, long-lived cyclones, mm. like we find on Jupiter. So I think there's still work to be done on that, Andrew, but um, stormy weather seems to be a common feature of, uh, well, of today's uh, episode of the podcast as well as what yes. goes on on the outer planets. Yes, the sun and, and the, uh, the the gas giants. Uh, yeah. They all seem to have uh, very similar... Uh, anatomy, don't they? When you, yeah, you mean the observation the or, the, or the planets themselves? Well, the, the, not not so much the the makeup of the planets, but the way they behave. Uh, yes, yeah, that's right. Certainly, the gas giants do, um, because uh, we know we don't, we don't actually know for certain that there is a core at the centre of them, although we expect them to be. And in fact, in in the case of um, all the gas giants, you might expect it to be metallic because they all have strong magnetic fields, uh, particularly Jupiter. So um, the, the, there are common features in the way they're put together. And, and of course, the reason why we've got gas giants out uh, beyond, you know, in the, in the far depths of the solar system comes about because of the, the fact that they're beyond the frost line. Uh, so when planets were being formed, they could accrete ices more rapidly uh, than the inner planets could and got bigger more quickly. And mm. that's what we think happened. Okay. Interesting stuff. Um, I, I'm glad astronomers uh, don't name streets, Fred. I mean, we've got the big red spot, we've got the big dark spot, we've got the big bright spot. If they name streets, it'd be long street, short street, medium length street, slightly curved street. 
big curved street. Yeah. I mean, Uphill street. <laughs> Downhill street. Downhill street. Uh, uh, you're right. Yeah. You're absolutely right. We're rubbish at naming things. Um, <laughs> Very yeah. large telescope. Well, exactly. <laughs> Wouldn't you think it would be, uh, you know, El Grande Telescopio Galileo? Because it's yes. European. Oh, of that's, course. That's yeah. course, the telescope, Josef Fraunhofer, or something like that, but it's not. Yeah. It's, the, it's the very large telescope. Very large telescope, which also sounds like a kind of lunch, VLT. <laughs> yes, it does. <laughs> and, I, and I must um, say it, it was uh, very clever of you not to talk about the spots on Uranus. Have you seen someone about that? <laughs> I'm not even going to go there, Andrew. <laughs> I'm going to keep trying. I'm well, I get trying. You know, yeah, I got into enough trouble with Why Is Uranus Upside Down when I <laughs> came out back in 23rd, 27th. It's a damn good book, though, and very clever title. Mm. Yeah. Banned in America, of course. Not no. Another lady in America. No. <laughs> All right. Uh, and again, if you want to chase up the story about uh, the spots on Neptune, phys.org, P-H-Y-S.org is the website where you'll find that story. I'm sure it's on other publications as well. This is Space Nuts with Andrew Dunkley and Professor Fred Watson. Okay, we checked all four systems and being with a go. Space Nuts. Okay, Fred, we've reached the end of the show, except for the last bit. We've got to do the last bit before the end of the show, and oh, that's that all about... Yeah, it's better than doing it after the end of the show. Yeah, really. yeah, yeah. Uh, this is all about audience questions. We've got to. I'm going to do some text questions today just to catch up because um, we we haven't done any on mass for a while. This one comes from David. From the point of a photon, it is emitted and instantaneously absorbed, regardless of the distance it travels, and the universe is expanding faster than the speed of light. If the photon has an unimpeded path towards the edge of the universe. What does the photon experience after emission? Would it essentially become stuck in time? I love the show. You guys are fantastic at presenting complicated material in a way that people can understand. Thank you for all that you do in educating and entertaining uh, en masse. Uh, one side note, I am a huge fan of Vegemite. <laughs> we found one. We found one. It's good stuff. is Talk about a big dark spot. Yeah, um, it can really stain your shirt, that stuff. Uh, thanks, David. Um, yes, to the trials and tribulations of a journey of a photon. Yeah, that's right. So um, the, there's a number of issues here. We're, you know, the, the, We don't know whether the universe has an edge or not. In fact, mm. it may not have. It may be just infinite or it may just be bendy in such a way that you always end up back where you started from if you, if you try. Yeah, that one hurts my brain, yeah. that one. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, but yes, it, uh, for a photon, uh, time doesn't really exist because they're moving at the speed of light. So yes, it's instantaneous creation and, and whatever happens to it at the other end. Uh, I think, uh, if you, if you've got a photon that's traveling through space, uh, and being stretched in its wavelength, so it's getting redshifted, uh, it's, it, it, when we think about the expansion of the universe being faster than the speed of light, what we're really talking about is two places in the universe uh, whose separation is greater than the speed. The rate of separation is greater than the speed of light. What it means is that a photon emitted by point A will never get to point B because it's always going away faster than it. So the photon itself doesn't really understand that. It doesn't need to know that. All it needs to know is it's traveling. 
um, because it still is uh, through through space. It's traveling mm. through space. Space itself can expand at any speed. Uh, things going through space can't go any faster than the speed of light. Um, I don't know whether that answers David's question. It's a slightly waffly answer, but... Um, yeah, well, I suppose, yeah, what does the photon experience after emission? Um, so it doesn't experience time, so he yeah. wonders if it's stuck in time, I suppose. Well, yes. yeah, that's right. Yes, I think it is. I think that's the way we normally think of of uh, photons. Yeah. I, I wonder, though, with a photon, I mean, uh, they have a fairly short journey to hit us from the sun after, yeah. you know, the 200,000 years it takes for them to get out of there. Yes, that's right. Um, what what happens after they hit the planet? I mean, do they bounce off and go somewhere else or do they get absorbed and that's the end of their life, which means they've been ripped off because they could have just missed us and gone on forever? Well, that's right. That's the extraordinary thing, isn't it? The photons that we receive from the sun are just a tiny fraction of what the sun emits. Most of them head off into outer space and to some distant civilization, if such things exist, it will just look like a star. Mm. But yeah, it's it's about the photon being absorbed. And so um, sometimes it's re-emitted as well, uh, which is why you get greenhouse effects. Sometimes you you get photons, which are photons of light are absorbed, re-emitted as infrared radiation. And with a greenhouse blanket, you, that infrared can't get out, so everything just gets warmer. Um, so, uh, it, and and you know, when when a photon of light hits a detector, whether it's on an astronomical telescope or in your camera, uh, it, it it basically clouts a, a, an atom of silicon, knocks off an electron, which is then detected by the circuitry that um, uh, you know that that reads the reads the image off your sensor your sensor. But it but it it's being absorbed, as you say, and actually that's the process that gets. Uh, photons out from the centre of the sun. There, it's not the same photon that started off and took two hundred thousand years to get out to the sun's disk. It's a continuous scattering effect where one photon, it's a, a, a subatomic particle probably rather than an atom, um, and and is re-emitted then as a different photon and then clouts something else is re-emitted again, uh, and eventually it winds its way to the to the to the edge of the sun's disk, the edge of the sun's atmosphere, and we see it. And it yells, freedom! Oh, damn, there's Earth. Yeah, eight, eight and a half minutes later, it hits the Earth. That's right. Yeah. So when a photon is dead, does it become something else or is it just gone? Uh, it's it's Well, it's a packet of energy, and so the energy's been redistributed as something else. That's the, ah, right, that's gotcha. Bottom line. Okay. Makes sense. Photons never die. That should be a T-shirt. Old it? photons never die. They just end up as spots on Uranus. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's okay. something else. I'm trying. Well, uh, <laughs> uh, thank you, David. Mua, mua as well. <laughs> yeah, we'll stay away from that one. Uh, yeah. Thank you, David. Uh, Mike is next. Uh, hi, space nutters. Uh, the density of gas in the vacuum of space is his topic. Uh, we're always talking about and looking at gas clouds in space. So my question is: What is the density of gas in between the planets of the solar system? What is the density of gas in between stars in the galaxy? And what is the density of gas in between galaxies? Also, what is the density of gas in a typical nebula? I'm assuming the answer will be X number of atoms per cubic metre, with X being the smaller number. Regards, Mike. So a lot of questions in there, but um, yeah. yes, I hope, I hope you take something for your gas, Mike. That <laughs> might help. 
Um, so, yeah, it's actually more than you might think. Mm. Uh, this is... Uh, so, look, the easy thing to do is look it up on Wikipedia. Yeah. Uh, density of the interstellar medium. Um, and that's... I, I th yeah, I, I think this is the upper limit um, where you you could get, and, and I'm thinking now about giant molecular clouds. So that's kind of what um, um, uh, what Mike's asking about the density in nebulae. Uh, and a figure here, I've got uh, one trillion molecules per cubic meter. Oh, uh, now that sounds like a lot, but compared to the ap the atmosphere on Earth, it's nothing. Uh, it's it's still very rarefied, but um, then if you've got some of the hot nebulae uh, where th things are a bit more excitable, uh, so yeah, so I guess that will be a cold, cold giant molecular cloud will be ten to twelve molecules per cubic meter. Um, in a, in a hot uh, uh, nebula, it's going to be much much lower, and in fact, the figure I've got here is. Maybe even as low as one hundred per cubic meter. Did I say square meter there? I meant cubic meter. Okay, uh, cubic meter. Um, so, so that's a sort of upper and lower limits in a way. Um, and I think, you know, the, the density of of uh, well, space between the planets is probably higher because you've got dust. Um, let's just try and check that figure. Uh, by putting interplanetary space, five particles per cubic centimeter. There you oh, go. Oh, there you are. Yeah, <laughs> that's so, not much. No, it's that's... not. It's not. It's not much. Even that's... when you, you know make it quick cubic meters, uh, it's not much. Mm, that's light on. Well, it's <clears> not <throat> light either. <laughs> mm. Okay. Does that cover everything? Oh, a density of a gas in a typical nebula. Did we cover that? Yeah, that's what we were just yeah, right. Yeah, okay. different kinds of nebulae. Yeah. <clears throat> See how much I listen. Um, but yes, thank you, Mike. Uh, we've got one more text question before we finish up today, and this one comes from Yuri. Uh, this is a bit of a speculator. The two proposals for living on another planet include essentially an in, uh, encapsulated environment on Mars or, wait for it, a floating city on yes. Venus. Uh, there have been some indications in the past that there might be organic activity in Venus's atmosphere already. Uh, some of us um, um, psychology fans are wondering about the uh, possibility of using algae uh, to reduce the concentration of CO2 in Venus's atmosphere. However, there are other more tectonic, volcanic in nature factors to consider. When comparing this with the long-term self-contained uh, oxygen production needs for Mars, I personally favour Venus, which idea do space nuts see working best? Uh, aside from staying on Earth and fixing our own problems, um, I well, I would have normally said Mars, but um, he's brought up an interesting point about a floating city. Yeah. Um, so can you just read that bit about the organics in uh, in Venus's atmosphere again, Andrew? Uh, yes. There have been some indications in the past that there might be organic activity in Venus's atmosphere yeah. already. Yeah. Um, so... Uh, the, uh, yeah, I haven't got this in front of me. Um, there was a bit there where you said psycholo 
did you say fans of psychology? Oh, f- yeah, I don't think that's the word. Some of no. us, <laughs> is it psychology? Phycolo- yeah, it could be, yeah. Yeah, psychology. Right. sorry, yeah. my brain just automatically interpreted an S. So, yeah, so, so um, the, the interesting ideas here and, mm. um, um, you know, whether you could make, so we think that Venus is, uh, the upper layers of Venus's atmosphere are relatively benign <laughs> compared with the surface which is uh, a hellhole, as somebody once described yeah. Hiding Spring, yes. where it had rained on him for many, many weeks. Mm. Uh, it's, um, uh, it's, it's not a good place. Uh, 400 and, what is it, 50 degrees Celsius, uh, and really uh, probably lots of noxious gases as well from possibly tectonic activity. We, we really don't know whether that's happening or not. Uh, different ideas come out nearly every week. But um, in the atmosphere... Uh, there, it, there are regions where certainly the temperature is much more akin to what we have on Earth. Uh, I um, would worry about the solar, the, sorry, the sulfuric acid drizzle, uh, but I think that's only at certain layers in the atmosphere. Mm. Um, and um, so organic chemistry, I guess, um, may be taking place. So I'm trying to remember that there was some, um, Phosphine was thought to have been observed by scientists at the James Clark Maxwell um, Microwave Telescope in Hawaii uh, a few years ago. And that was uh, very exciting because phosphine in rocky planets would have to be produced by living organisms, or most likely would be. And Um, the popular press really latched onto that. They did. They did. They they took it to heart. Uh, but then new observations suggested that actually, I can't remember what it was. I think it might have been sulfur dioxide. It was something like that that was not uh, a biomarker, uh, but has a very similar spectral signature to phosphine. Mm. So um, I think there's still uh, research being done on that kind of organic activity within the, uh, within the atmosphere of Venus. Now, um, my... Bet, and I don't know whether you'd agree with me, uh, I suspect you would, Andrew, is I'd rather be in a controlled atmosphere on Mars than subject to the vagaries of what might be going on with atmospheric chemistry on Venus. Yeah, I th- I think so too. Um, I think they're both fraught with danger Yeah, uh, because you're in um, hostile, inhuman parts of the solar system where we're not designed to live. So you're always subject to catastrophe, yes, uh, or the potential right. for catastrophe. So, uh, but I think Mars would be a much more stable and much more controllable place to be. Yes. Perhaps. Well, that's right. Um, that's right. We know that Mars is essentially geologically dead. Uh, some people think that the the methane bursts that we see on Mars may be due to residual volcanic activity down deep below the surface, but um, I'd much rather have that than um, being hanging around Venus. Uh, and of course, uh, one of the other uh, hazards on Venus is you're much closer to the sun, uh, mm-hmm. so the solar wind is going to be much more of a tempest than uh, than a breeze. Uh, and um, yeah, that's likely, I think, to be one of the one of the um, difficulties with any kind of human habitation of Venus. I, I suspect most scientists. Uh, wrote Venus off a long time ago as a potential place to to take humans. Uh, But it's nice to see Yuri still thinking outside the box and uh, wondering whether we could do something in the atmosphere. Yeah. 
and I've uh, I've checked up on it because I needed to double check myself. Phycology is a scientific study of algae. There you go. Yeah. Yep. Um, it's a branch, of, bio- branch more, of biology. More sense than psychology. <laughs> yeah. Just no, I brain, have my brain just went there. Well, <laughs> which, yeah. It, it, it's one of my great failings. I, if I don't understand a word, I'll, I'll, I'll replace it. <laughs> <laughs> well, you could have thought, no, you could be forgiven. You could have thought, oh, that's obviously a typo. Well, I, that's probably how it went. Yeah. Indeed. Uh, thanks, Yuri. Uh, interesting argument, but I'm still voting for Mars. Yeah. Um, but I'll send you a note. Yes. <laughs> All right. Uh, we're just about done. Um, I, I don't do this very often, but I thought I'd uh, give a plug to our uh, our sister podcasts, Astronomy Daily with Tim and Steve, and Space Time with Stuart Gary. Uh, if you if you like the uh, astronomy world and want to hear more on your podcasting platforms. Uh, have a listen to Astronomy Daily with uh, Steve and Tim. They do a great job uh, alongside Halley, the, um, uh, the the effervescent artificial intelligence that we use, and Space Time with uh, Stuart Gary, as always, uh, is uh, very informative and, uh, and uh, really uh, nuts out some of the, the big stories in uh, day-to-day astronomy life. So, uh, yeah, definitely worth... Um, uh, chasing up those two podcasts, part of the bytes.com stable. And don't forget, if you have a question for us or anything along those lines, jump on our uh, website and send it to us, text or audio style, spacenutspodcast.com or spacenuts.io. Right. <laughs> nearly forgot what the letters of the alphabet were there. Uh, but, yeah, it's worth, uh, worth doing and have a look around while you're there. Maybe um, consider going to the shop and buying why is Uranus upside down and why has it got spots. Ask a proctologist. Or um, you can uh, uh, become a, um, a patron. That's, uh, that's an option as well. You can read all about it on our website. Fred, uh, always a pleasure. Thank you so much. We'll catch you on the next episode. It sounds good, Andrew. Take care and we'll see you soon. Okie dokie. Catch you then. Fred Watson, astronomer at large, part of the team here at Space Nuts. And thanks to Hugh in the studio for getting an eye injection. I wouldn't wish it on anyone else. Hugh, thanks so much. No, seriously. Uh, And from me, Andrew Dunkley, thanks so much for your company. Looking forward to catching you on the very next episode of Space Nuts. Bye-bye. Space Nuts. You'll be listening to the Space Nuts podcast. Available at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or your favourite podcast player. You can also stream on demand at Bytes.com. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com.